0: This is our third week, and let me read the scripture. Matthew 24, uh, Jesus is asked by his disciples, uh, tell us about your coming and the destruction of that temple. And Jesus says this, Matthew 24, verse 4, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. We talked about that last week. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And We we talked about kind of the powder keg going on in the Middle East over there. And there will be famines. We talked about the fact that half of the world lives on $2 a day, and a fourth of the world lives on $1 a day. And earthquakes in various places. We looked at the uh, uh, the seismographical information. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. And the idea there is that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, they will increase in intensity. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And you say, are we being persecuted? Well, of the two billion professed Christians on the planet, one billion live on this side of the earth and in other countries where we're living in paradise. The other billion live in countries where they are persecuted. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. The great apostasy. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. We'll, we'll devote a, a special message to false prophets. And because, of lawless, because lawlessness will be increased, or wickedness, the NIV says, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We saw that uh, 90% of the languages in the world... There's a translation in 90 per, of the Bible in, in 90%. Still got that 10% to go, but the gospel is spreading, and then the end will come. All right? So these, here's my understanding of this. Um, these signs characterize the entire church age, but they will intensify as we get closer to the end. Now, today, we want to go back and zero in on This, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. False Christs. If you do a little Google search on false Christs, here's what I came up with. Over 75, or close to 75 people um, from the first century to today who have either claimed to be the Messiah or who have claimed to be divine or who are worshipped as divine, some of them alive today, but about 75 of them uh, have shown their face in, in church history. But here's what I want to focus on today. Not just all the false Christs that have already come, but the one false Christ that you've heard about who will come in the end, and that is the Antichrist. Okay? Um, here in 1 John 2.18, it says, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So the big guy's coming, but already there have been many little Antichrists. And John's using the term there uh, in the, the idea that any, any false teaching that's not the true gospel comes from somebody who has set themselves up in opposition to Christ. A false gospel comes from an antichrist. But there is a final antichrist. Uh, we also see this in 2 Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were confused. They thought that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That's the word apostasy. So there will be a great falling away from the faith in the end times. Um, So that day will not come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So there is a man, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be god so in the end there will be somebody who sets himself up higher than god and he goes into the temple what does that mean well there's two possibilities one that a literal temple will be rebuilt over in jerusalem on the temple mount and um the antichrist will set up his fax machine there okay Now, how it's been taken through church history is Paul is using the word temple metaphorically and that's referring to the church. In other words, somebody will rise up within Christendom and set himself up as God. So, here's what I want to do today. I want to explore three options. Top three Antichrist possibilities. Okay? Um, somebody this morning asked, are you taking nominations or is, uh, no, we won't be taking nominations. But, And, and by the way, um, you might say, well, why don't you lock in on one? You know what I've learned about eschatology and end times? Um, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Therefore, I think the best plan is to be a little more humble and step back and go, you know what? there's this school of thought, there's this school of thought, there's this school of thought, there's this possibility, there's this possibility, there's this possibility. And I think the best way to educate a congregation is to expose you to many options. And if, let's say, the end times are are happening and it doesn't go according exactly to the left-behind book, (gasps) what do we do? You know what? They informed us that there's other possibilities out there. Okay? So, um, let me talk about three possibilities. First one the historic Protestant option. Who have Protestants, since the time of the Reformation, looked to as the possible Antichrist? Now, warning, spoiler alert this is not meant to be offensive may be offensive but it's not meant it's just teaching church history you know we're so politically correct today you can't even teach history without offending people but um, here's what Luther said this teaching of the supremacy of the Pope shows forcefully that the Pope is the very Antichrist who has exalted himself above and opposed himself against Christ because he will not permit Christians to be saved without his power Which nevertheless is nothing and is neither ordained nor commanded by God. So Luther identified the papacy in general as the Antichrist, and whoever the specific pope was um, when the end comes would be the ultimate man uh, of lawlessness. Now, you go, that's horrible. Well, he's not just calling names. If Luther were here today and we said, why would you believe this? I think he would say, well, first of all, the office of Pope is not biblical. It's, a, it's not a legitimate office to begin with. Neither is the priesthood. There's no priesthood in the New Testament. So there's no such thing as a priest. There's no such thing as a cardinal. There's no such thing as a Pope. It's an illegitimate office. Secondly, he is called Holy Father. The only time the Bible uses the phrase Holy Father, it's Jesus praying to God. It's a divine title. But I think Luther would say the biggest issue is the gospel that the Pope would preach. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what's the gospel? What must I do to be saved? What would he he answer? Well, he was asked that question in Acts 16. What must I do to be saved? And he said, well, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the authority of Scripture alone. What would the Pope say? Well, salvation begins with infant baptism, and the infant baptism regenerates the soul of the child. And then you get on a treadmill of sacramental salvation, where you get filled up with more justifying grace, and you lose justifying grace, and you get more. And if you commit a mortal sin, you need to be re-justified again. And then you need to do works of penance, which involve praying to someone other than God at times, praying to Mary. And then, when you die, you get to go to purgatory for an indefinite amount of time. Now, which one's the true gospel? One's a false gospel. One's a satanic gospel. One's a gospel that will send you to hell. The other one is the true gospel. But that's not nice to say that. It's true, and we're, if we're in the end times, you better not be fooled. You better be able to take a stand on the true gospel, not on a works-righteousness gospel. So uh, Luther would say, yeah, he's the Antichrist. Now his successor, Melanchthon, said this, Since it is certain that the pontiffs and the monks have forbidden marriage, it is most manifest and true without any doubt that the Roman pontiff, with his whole order and kingdom, is very Antichrist. Likewise, in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul clearly says that the man of sin will rule in the church, exalting himself above the worship of God. Then, of course, Zwingli, another reformer, said this. Speaking of the papacy, he wrote, I know that in it, in the papacy, works the might and power of the devil, that is, of the Antichrist. Calvin identifies the Pope as the Antichrist in uh, the Institutes, book 4. John Knox in England said, he wrote that for the gospel to make headway in Europe, the people there would first have to learn to identify the Pope as, quote, that ver- or the very Antichrist and son of perdition of whom Paul speaks. Now, you go, well, these were just individuals. You know that in the, the, the London Baptist Confession and in the Westminster Confession of Faith, I mean, these were articles of faith, um, they're no longer there. But at one point, to be a Baptist and to be a Presbyterian, you had to believe this. The Pope of Rome is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So imagine that, standing up and reciting the creed. We believe in the Father Almighty, the Lord Jesus, and the Pope is the Antichrist. Jonathan Edwards, here in America, he wrote a book where he identifies the rise of the papacy as, quote, the rise of the Antichrist. John Wesley wrote a book titled Antichrist and His Ten Kingdoms. Quote, he is in an emphatical sense the man of sin, as he increases all manner of sin above measure, and he is, too, properly styled the son of perdition. And, of course, what you've got to ask, what does Spurgeon believe? Spurgeon says, Popery anywhere, whether it be Anglican or Romish, is contrary to Christ's gospel, and it is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and sink to rise no more. If we can pray against error... For Christ, because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement and lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Savior and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Spirit and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. So Spurgeon, Wesley, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, all united on who the Antichrist would be. Now, this is offensive. But here's what I would say to our generation. Rather than have a knee-jerk emotional offense, maybe we should go, what is it that these giants of church history have in common? Maybe rather than be offended, maybe we should ask the question, why is our generation so quick to dismiss what they all, in one accord, believed. Right? You go, so, so do you believe this? That's option one. Let's go to option two. The Islamic option. So now that we've offended one third of the world, let's now offend the next third of the world. Okay, The uh, Islamic option. Now, um, this comes from... A sermon that John MacArthur preached, and I was going to, to uh, reduce it to my own words. And I, you know what? I, I just got the transcript. I, I cleaned it up a little bit. And not because not it has swear words in it, come on. Um, <laughs> you know that MacArthur. Um, but this is actually from a sermon on the Olivet Discourse out of Mark's Gospel. And let me, this, this is going to open some of your eyes. The Muslim Jesus plays a crucial role in Islamic eschatology. Now, you do know that the Muslims have an eschatology. In other words, they have a theology of the end. Let me describe the Muslim Jesus to you. This is out of their own writings, the Quran and the Sunnah. So, um, when we talk about the Muslim Jesus, they believe that a Jesus is coming back. Okay? In their system, they have Jesus. Jesus was a man. He was not God. He did not die. He went to heaven like Elijah. He did not die, therefore he did not rise. He did not rise, therefore he did not provide atonement for anyone because no one can provide atonement for anyone else. He's a man, he's a prophet, he is nothing more. And he's in heaven right now, standing alongside Allah, waiting for Allah to send him back. Now the question to ask is, why would Allah want to send Jesus back? Answer, so that when he shows up, he can correct. All the Christians who have misunderstood who he is. So Jesus is coming back, not as king of kings and lord of lords, but to say, hey, you guys got it wrong. I'm not who you think I am. The great event of the coming of Christ or the coming of Jesus is so that this prophet, this man who comes back can straighten out the misdirected, misguided, misconceiving Christians who think he was God and who died and rose again and provided atonement. He'll come back and straighten it out. And by the way, after he gets here, he'll get married, have children, and die and be buried next to Muhammad. So, you know, when you go, oh, the Muslims and the Christians, we all believe in Jesus, coexist. I don't think our Jesus and their Jesus have anything in common. In Islamic eschatology, there are three great signs of the end. Three great signs, and each of them is a man. Let uh, Let me tell you about these three men. The first man that will come in the end is the Mahdi. M-A-H-D-I. Sometimes he is called the 12th Imam. Every time Ahmadinejad over there in Iran gives a speech, he gives glory to the Mahdi. Glory to the 12th Imam. Every time he's waiting for the coming of Mahdi. What's he coming to do? He's coming, listen carefully, to slaughter all who will not worship Allah and convert to Islam. They are identified in their writings as pigs and dogs. So, The 12th Imam is coming to slaughter you, you pig, you dog, and to establish the everlasting world-dominating kingdom of Islam. The Mahdi, or the 12th Imam, that that means the guided one, is the long-awaited savior. So here's their, their savior. He's the establisher of the final caliphate. The world must follow him as he takes over. Or he will destroy all enemies of Islam. He will come and he will carry on a holy war. And either you convert or you're killed. He will have an army. His army will be a massive army. And his army will go from nation to nation to punish unbelievers. The holy writings of Islam say that this army will carry black flags. And on those black flags there will be one word. And that word will be the word punishment. By the way, the Iranian army today carries black flags. They want to be ready for the coming of the Mahdi. He will lead the army of black flags first to Israel, slaughter all the Jews, and then he will establish his rule in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. According to their holy writings, the Mahdi will bring rain and wind and crops and wealth and happiness so that all will love him and no one will speak of anyone but him. The writings, their writings say the Mahdi will come and make at first a peace agreement with the Jews in the West, for seven years. The reign of Mahdi will last seven years in which he establishes Islam on earth. When the Mahdi arrives, he will discover... Now listen to this. Hidden scriptures. He will discover them, interesting enough, somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. And there will be their hidden scriptures, hidden gospels and a hidden Torah. And they will be the true scriptures which will be used by the Mahdi to show the Jews and the Christians they were wrong, that their scriptures were the false scriptures. If that sounds familiar, that is a precise description of the biblical Antichrist, absolutely step by step by step. The Bible's Antichrist is their Mahdi. Why am I giving you this? Because the description of the Mahdi is exactly the description of the of the biblical antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13. And you go into any kind of study of that, and you will find that all the details match up perfectly. The Bible's antichrist is Islam's savior and world conqueror who establishes a universal kingdom, Islamic kingdom. There's a second sign, a second person, that's Jesus. Let me quote what their literature says. He will shatter crosses. That's metaphoric for the destruction of the church, a symbol of Christianity being placed in the church. He will kill pigs. He will abolish the tax on non-Muslims because there won't be any living non-Muslims. Can't tax dead people. And then he will do one more thing. He will kill the Islamic Antichrist. Then he will die and be buried by Muhammad, but not until he has destroyed Christianity by revealing who he really is. So you've got the 12th Imam. You've got the Christ. That leads me to the third person. The Antichrist, their Antichrist. The Antichrist will show up. The Muslims call him Dajjal. He is the great deceiver. But you know who he claims to be? He claims to be Jesus, the Son of God. He claims to be deity. He will attempt to stop the Mahdi and the other Jesus, but the other Jesus will slaughter him. You got your Jesuses all straight here? This is their view of the true Christ. Our Jesus is their Antichrist. Our Antichrist is their Redeemer. Whoa! It is a satanic counterfeit that is in complete reverse. The army, this is a quote, the army of Satan will be led by a person who will claim to be Jesus. There will be a battle. The Muslim Jesus will fight the false Jesus and kill him and establish Islam forever. The truth is the true Jesus will destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and establish his kingdom forever. This is Satan's complete counterfeit Muslim world domination. Option two. Okay? Option two is the Islamic um, Mahdi. And by the way, you, you go, oh, that's just fairy tale. Ahmadinejad over there in Iran says, we're going to build a bomb and nuke Israel and get this thing started. Let's get this party happening. Because out of the chaos, the 12th Imam will arise. You go, well, that sounds. That sounds pretty good. Do you buy that one? Well, let me give you a third option. The Hitler prototype option. Okay. Now, kind of the expert in this area is uh, Erwin Lutzer, who is the pastor of Moody Memorial Church down in Chicago. And he's written two books on this. One is called Hitler's Cross, and the second one is called When a Nation Forgets God where he looks at the parallels between Nazi Germany's rise and what's going on in the world in America today. And here's what Lutzer says. Hitler, I believe, is a prototype for the Antichrist who will someday arise and perform economic and political wonders. He too will mesmerize millions and demand the worship of the world. He will be able to accomplish feats of conquest and control that Hitler could not have dreamed possible. We are naive if we think Nazi Germany cannot happen again. In fact, the Bible predicts that it will. Did Hitler see himself as a Christ? Um, Hitler said, what Christ began, I will complete. Thousands of pastors in Germany swore personal allegiance To Hitler. The nation thought he was the Savior. And by the way, they were 95% professing Christians in Germany. The Reformation came out of Germany. Some churches changed the Lord's Prayer to, Our Father Adolf, who art in Nuremberg, hallowed be thy name, thy Third Reich, come. Rudolf Haas, commander of Auschwitz, stated before his execution in 1947 that he would have gassed and burned his own wife, children, and even himself if only the Fuhrer had commanded it. Much of the nation came under the spell of a man who was hailed as the long-awaited savior. And then the German church, the pastors, many of them were mesmerized by Hitler. This is uh, Julius Luther, He says, Christ has come to us through Hitler, through his honesty, his faith, and his idealism. The Redeemer found us. We know today the Savior has come. We have only one task, to be German, not Christians. Now, um, Lutzer in his book, When a Nation Forgets, I think he has seven parallels to watch for. Let me give you three um, that, that I've kind of culled out of both of the books. Three factors that led to Germany's deception. They all begin with the letter E. Right? First one, the economy. Um, after World War I, Germany was forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles, and there was huge war penalties that were placed upon them, and um, their economy fell apart. By, by the end of them doing QE1 and QE2 and QE3, quantitative easing, in printing money. Um, Originally, the German market was one American dollar equaled four marks. By the time they were done with all this printing of money, uh, it was one dollar equaled four billion marks. So the mark was worth nothing. There's the classic story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, the lady who had the wheelbarrow of marks, went to the bread store and set it outside. She went in, came out. The uh, money had been dumped, but somebody stole the the wheelbarrow. That's how valueless uh, the mark was at that time. So long comes Hitler, and he says, we're going to socialize the government, National Socialistic Party. And he promised Uh, to fix everything. One person says this, Gerald Schuster, Many welcome the abolition of individual responsibility for one's actions. For some, it is easier to obey than to accept the dangers of freedom. Workers now had job security, a health service, cheap holiday schemes. If freedom meant starvation, then slavery was preferable. See, when people are in hard economic times, it's easy to throw your brain away and follow somebody who promises security and a job and uh, everything you need economically. So the first thing was a bad economy. I would imagine that when the whole world economy is shaky, as it is, this would be a good time for a world leader to promise economic solutions. Second thing that led Germany into deception was eloquence, Hitler's eloquence. One of his friends said, it was as if another being spoke out of his body. It was not a case of a speaker carried away by his own words, I felt as though he himself listened with astonishment and emotion to what broke forth from him. And I think it was something else that spoke out of his body. Have you ever seen the, the clips of the thousands and thousands of people lined up and he's ranting and raving? Uh, at, at times, he would, after a speech, collapse from exhaustion. People were just mesmerized by his eloquence. Now, um, if the Bible tells us anything about how to listen to a speaker, it tells us not to be duped by eloquence. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were really impressed with the speakers in the Corinthian church who could mesmerize them and use Greek philosophy. And they kind of put Paul on the lower shelf and said, you're not as good as these other guys. And Paul writes and says, and praise God, because it's not about me and it's not about my eloquence. In fact, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You know, there are some churches that are booming because of the eloquence and the eloquence of the pastor and the excellence of the music. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean that it's a true revival. There are whole church growth strategies built on eloquence and musical excellence. Now, am I for bad preaching and Stinky music? No. But we've got to listen past the emotion of the speaker to the content of what he's saying. Paul goes on in, in chapter 2 to say this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I came shaking... I came not very eloquent. I can't live up to your your heroes who who can spout Greek philosophy and and make you cry and make you laugh. I, I just I'm just a bumbling, stumbling, ineloquent person. But you got saved, didn't you? And that's the Spirit's power. Not an auditorium full of people. That means nothing. It's the transforming gospel that matters. And God has chosen to speak the gospel from weak people, out of ineloquent people, out of little podunk pastors and evangelists, not necessarily out of the perfectly polished people. Okay? So, eloquence, be careful, whether it's a, a preacher or a politician uh, boy we we are an emotion led nation entertainment movies the internet has has drawn us out of being a cognitive thought first nation to an emotional feeling first nation and once that transformation takes place, watch out for a charismatic leader to stand up. All right? Third thing, let's call it an effeminate church, was the third downfall of Germany. A church that rather than stand up and preach the truth, gave in. Now, Hitler was smart enough to know that he can't just directly destroy the church. I mean, 95% of, of Germany was Christian. So he said, let's use Luther's doctrine to destroy the church, to deceive the church. Now, Luther had a doctrine called the doctrine of the two kingdoms where he said God has instituted um, two realms, two uh, institutions to rule the world. One is the government, and that is true. God has set up government. Government, Romans 13, is God-ordained. And then secondly, the church to rule spiritually. And uh, now Luther said when... The world government, the church, or excuse me, the, gov- the, the national government conflicts with the church, you go with the church, you go with the truth. Right? But here's, here's uh, the problem. It'd be nice if you could separate the realm of government and the realm of the church as two separate realms. In reality, they overlap. Now, what Hitler did was he said, let's separate those realms. Even though the same people are in both realms, let's split them out. And we, the government ordained of God, we will handle political issues. And you, Christians, you can go to your churches and you deal with spiritual issues. Sure, go ahead, preach Christ and him crucified. But we'll handle all the rest. In fact, um, there was a, an order called the Muzzling Order in 1937, which forbade ministers from getting into controversial political issues. The church service was only for the gospel. So, here's what I would say. Here in America, yeah, we have the political. I don't think I should be endorsing candidates. But you know what? There are moral and ethical issues that overlap. And so many today say, oh, well, abortion, homosexuality, uh, those are are political issues. I'm not going to comment on them in the church, not because the government's breathing down our neck, but because... Churches and pastors have self-regulated themselves. They go, we'll lose numbers if I mention these political issues. Germany enforced this at the barrel of a gun. We self-enforce it at the barrel of losing members. Um, But you can't separate them. They overlap. But... They were separated in Germany. So, here's what would happen. You go to church on Sunday. And then you step out of church, and you hear what Hitler's doing with the Jews, and you go, well, personally, I believe Jews are human. But the law calls for their extermination, and that's in the political realm that God has established. Therefore, I can be a good Christian, go to church, sing my hymns, step out of church, and submit to the government. That's how Christians were duped. You go, how stupid can they be? Well, how many Christians say, well, personally, I believe life begins at conception, but abortion's a political issue. So I can be a good Christian while allowing... That Holocaust. Which one's worse, by the way? Personally, I believe homosexual behavior is sinful. But if the government says it's okay and gay marriage is okay, then let's just not make waves. See how it works? We play the game just like Germany. I don't know if I've read this before, but. In his book, When a Nation Forgets God, uh, this is an actual German Christian who lived during Nazi Germany, wrote this. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the trains as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camps. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came to pass our church, we were singing at the top of our lungs. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. So, we've named three places to look One in the church itself, one in the Islamic world, one in the political world. There will be incredible deception. The news media will jump right on board. You need to know the truth, you need to not be deceived. You go, how do we know who the true Jesus is? Here we go. We close on this. It's not that hard. When Jesus returns, it says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So there's a clue. The whole cosmos is out of whack. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So if a a messiah arises in Israel or arises in the church or arises on the political scene and he doesn't come from the clouds in the sky with great glory with the angels guess what it's not Jesus Just a little clue all right Now what's most important is this Are you ready are you ready? How do you know you're ready? You have trusted in Jesus. You're trusting in Him. Rather than this stuff scaring you, you're like, Yes, Jesus, come. What's it mean to believe in Jesus? It means, first of all, you realize you're a sinner, you deserve to go to hell. But you hear this really good news that He died on the cross. God became man and died on the cross to pay for your sins. And you stop trusting in your own righteousness and you turn and you fully trust in Him. You believe it with all your heart. He becomes your life. Does that describe you? Let's pray.